Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Murmurings, the National Credit Foundation podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Morris, Director of Communications at the Foundation, where every podcast, we're highlighting best practices around financial education, financial well-being, philosophy, and philanthropy in the credit space. That's a lot of what we do here at the Foundation, providing tools, resources, programs, and much more to credit unions and credit union organizations to help their members improve their financial lives. On this episode, we're going to be digging into diversity and inclusion with staff that work in this area at CUNA Mutual Group. You're going to hear from Eric Hansing, VP of Multicultural Strategy and Market Development, and Angela Russell, Director of Diversity and Inclusion. So we talk about why diversity and inclusion is important, how to have these conversations on the topic, research, including leveraging qualitative and quantitative data, what credits can do, and so much more. I truly, truly mean that. We talk about a lot of different things. I should mention after 30 episodes, this is actually the first time I recorded the podcast uh, in person, not on the phone. So I went over across the parking lot to the AV Studio Community Mutual Group, and we actually had this conversation in person. So pretty exciting. So you might notice a difference in sound quality and just a difference in the tone of the podcast, which is kind of cool. So I hope to do that much more often. So with that, let's go now to my conversation with Angela and Eric. Angela and Eric, welcome to Murmuring's podcast. So to start, I think it would be good just to introduce yourself. What do you do at CUNY Mutual Group? Well, I lead a new function for us. It's new to me, it's new to the company, and it's related to multicultural strategy and market development. What we're doing is trying to basically become especially relevant to an increasingly diverse population of credit union members. So when we think about diversity, of course, we're thinking about all kinds of diversity in the population, race and ethnicity, but also the LGBT community and, you know, veterans, people with disabilities, so many other things, but those are some of the ones that we're, that we're starting with. But we just want to be more relevant to that population, and it's my job to help sh- make sure we've got an intentional strategy for getting there. And I lead our diversity and inclusion for the company, and it's making sure that we have a diverse workforce, but also an inclusive workforce. There's this great phrase that diversity is useless without inclusion. And the reason why having a diverse workforce is to meet the changing needs of our consumer base. And Eric, I think this would be a great segue to talk about how the two of our worlds connect. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's great. We're um, very cognizant of the fact that one these functions cannot be done successfully without the other. Uh, We report up through very different parts of the organization. We bring very different strengths to the table, but we see this work as very complementary. For example, you know, we can't really do a very good job of thinking about strategies, interpreting data that we see going on in the external marketplace with consumers and things like that without really diverse and inclusive voices around the table. And so if we don't have an increasingly diverse and inclusive workforce, we're going to sort of misinterpret trends. We're going to be oblivious to the things that are going on in the marketplace, and we're just going to make suboptimal business decisions going forward. And when we think about diversity and inclusion, we have to think about that we're not just here for racial racial justice or social justice, which is what the core of my being is all about, but we, really we are trying to make CUNA Mutual a better business organization through profit and loss. So I learned a lot from Eric, and I think that he learned some from me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Every day. Yes. <laughs> whether you want to or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we talk sometimes about the business case for diversity and inclusion. And you know, while that question doesn't go away, it diminishes a little bit when we think about the, the external business case for reaching an increasingly diverse consumer population. Because you can, as Angela was talking about, you can say, look, we're doing this, the reason we're doing this is so that we can make more effectively those kinds of decisions that not only are the right things for consumers and for customers and for credit union members, but are really the right things for a growing business. 
Well, that's a good segue to my next question. I was going to ask why this is important in terms of diversity inclusion, multicultural marketing. I mean, so aside from the business case, is there anything else? Why should Keen Mutual or any credit union be concerned about this? Well, I think that it goes back to the balance between um, the social mission of credit unions and the business aspect of credit unions. And we actually provide a good balance to each other on that. Yeah. I'm very social justice, social mission oriented. I'm here because we're a part of the cooperative movement and Cuny Mutual grew up through the credit union um, aspect of cooperation. And then Eric really teaches me about profit and loss all the time. This is my first time in corporate America and I just want to, you know, make the world a better place. But Eric's like, we have, we're a business. Right. Yeah. So it really is a balance, you know, which is something, of course, that we we learned how to put like a real framework around in the credit union context through the the DE program. If we think about why we're here, about increasing the overall financial well-being of everyone across America, everyone across America is becoming increasingly more diverse and having that diverse background and experience and um, even financial experience within our workplace will inform how we provide our products and services over time. So true. I mean, you think about the creating philosophy of people and people. There's no asterisk, you know, against, you know, what kinds of people that concern. I mean, only the awesome ones. <laughs> only the awesome ones. I mean, but it serves for everybody. That's what creating do. Great point. We talked about the why, and let's talk about some tactical things. I've known you guys for a while, but most recently at the DE workshop, you guys did a session on doing well by doing good. Inclusion is a great business decision. And I was really impressed just the great session you had and the great conversation you led around race, perceptions, data. And I thought this is one of the topics I think everyone, you know, it's it's in the news. People are talking about it all the time, but not in the workplace setting, maybe so often, especially in large groups of people, like at a conference like we're, we're at. But I was really impressed by the way you guys kind of facilitated and handled the tough, uh, sometimes uncomfortable, again, uh, conversations that need to be had. So what advice would you give to Koreans that want to talk about this or even, you know, just people in general to kind of have those conversations? Well, know that it's going to be uncomfortable. We... I think when you think about um, discomfort, that's generally where our growth zone is at. I think you want to be uncomfortable, but not uh, still safe. You don't want to push folks off the cliff. Um, When Eric and I have these conversations, and whenever we do a DNI session, diversity and inclusion session, we start off with a series of ground rules and conversation guidelines, and I think that helps. So know that emotions are going to be triggered. Know that you're going to not everyone's going to be on the same page, and know that that's okay. And that's where growth and learning can come from. I think that's important to setting the context and and kind of opening up the discussion in the in the right way. I think equally important is just um, making a decision that earlier on, early on in all of these discussions, we're going to be honest. We're just going to be genuine, and we're going to admit sort of who we are and that we're still learning. Um, you know, share a little bit of our story. You know, I'll, I'll tell my story. I wasn't specifically involved in this kind of work, you know, up until a year and a half, two years ago, and. I've been making a lot of sort of personal discoveries and learning a lot of things about myself and about my interaction with the the broader world and uh, consumers and customers and just that that whole thing. And just being able to share some stories about that pretty early in a conversation really just sets things on the right path. You know, Mm -hmm. I I can make sure people know that I'm human too. This isn't going to be over academic, but we're going to show some data. You know, we're also going to talk about our experiences with this data and with each other on this topic. And we'll just throw words around early in these conversations that we know can be somewhat controversial. And in in doing that, kind of modeling the kind of behavior and openness that we want from the rest of the group. And and we try to do that here at CUNY Mutual a lot. Just just have those conversations, almost like encouraging people to lean in and make the mistake. Because it's much better to do that, get it out, discuss it, 
you know, make progress than it is to hold it in and just be, you know, until I'm certain that I'm going to get this right, I'm not going to say anything. That leaves a lot of voices unheard. And those are voices we need to hear in this work. I think one of the things that Eric is talking about really well is the notion of setting the tone and how does a credit union set the tone for having these conversations. And I think I'm very grateful that we actually have Bob, Bob Tronzo here at CUNA Mutual because he's the one who has actually set the tone and framework for this conversation. When he became CEO, one of the very first things that he did was add inclusion as a corporate value. And I've done this work in other organizations. And unless you have that executive level buy-in, it's not going to go as far as, you, as you'd like it to go. And I think that Bob has done a great, and his leadership team have done a great example of helping set the, the tone and the foundation for Eric and I to do our best work. No, that's a really good point in terms of um, setting the tone. you got to have executive level buy-in. Another thing, too, just to touch on, I thought was really interesting that you did at the workshop in terms of facilitating the session was I think we forget just how how many different opinions we have just in one room, for example. Like you show just things like, hey, here's some Pepsi ads, here's some Coke ads, you know, here's the famous Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad. And, you know, showing a 30-second or a two-minute clip and just watching people raise their hand be like, I thought this. Well, you thought that. I thought this is the complete opposite. So there's something to be said for really just showing, I don't know, the difference in the room. Because I think at a credit union, like, ah, everyone here thinks like me. Maybe or maybe not. So I thought that was pretty eye-opening, even for me to be like, wow, even in this room of creating people, the the diverse opinions was pretty amazing. Yeah. And I thought you guys did a great job of just kind of being like, okay, great, you know, everyone's opinion here is valid and good. Why do you think that? Why do you think that? And it's an interesting conversation. That was a super yeah. cool one, and it was different. We recognized right away than a lot of other conversations we've had on that same topic. And I think part of it was we'd spent a couple of days together already. That group was pretty comfortable speaking up and being honest. You know, and inside uh, any individual credit union or even inside CUNY Mutual, some of that can happen, you know, within groups that, that spend time together and get to know each other and you feel a little bit safe. This whole idea of trust before you're going to actually speak up with what you're really thinking is a big one. And just, just know that it's not fast and coming and it can be, you know, you can erode it you know, a lot faster than you can build it. I mean, of course, folks know that. But we did hear a lot of really diverse commentary. And sometimes it's just a matter of harnessing the energy in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, you had, you had a lot of opinions and views, and we were surprised by some of them because we hadn't heard those things before. But it really brings great conversation. And that's going to be needed later when you move into other topics. And so, um, again, sometimes we just try to find something that's going to get people talking and get some real comments coming out and almost stir up a little controversy, not because, not just for controversy's sake, but just to get some good, real commentary going. But that's where the magic can happen. That's where innovation can happen. That's where you can actually really begin to um, see the differences in of, of opinion, which reflects the differences of opinion, not just in the your, not just in your credit union, but out there, your consumers. So people are going to be different. And when you have that space for real conversation, that's a reflection of where we need to be in our workplaces more often. That it's a challenge because lots of times we try to assimilate into the standard corporate culture. And if you can create a space of trust and really open and honest conversation, that's where you can do a lot of good work. Absolutely. Sometimes we even call that sort of a performance culture. You sort of know that everybody's performing a little bit. Even their comments are filtered a little and processed before they come out because they want to look good. They want to say the right thing. They want to um, have the right opinion on something. And until they think they can have it, it might just stay silent. And, you know, you, you're around people enough, you start to sniff that out a little bit and, and try to find ways as a facilitator to bring out 
you know, deeper level reaction. Yeah, that, that notion about performance culture is interesting because I think, what does that mean in terms of an inclusive culture? If we're trying to perform, that doesn't mean that we have an inclusive environment where everyone can bring their full authentic selves. So that's a challenge, right? Right, it might get pretty close to covering on yeah, the negative totally side of covering. you're covering up what you're really thinking and who you really are in order to fit in, and exactly. we don't want that. Yeah, and I've read studies, I can't remember which ones, but the teams that are more diverse in terms of opinion and everything else and personalities, all that, usually are more productive. And I mean, it would make total sense in the way you're talking about. So to go back, I mean, you, uh, Eric, you mentioned data, in term, and that's one of the things you talked about at the, this workshop. But you know, you've been both doing this for a few years now. What kind of data that you've come across in your research is things, you know, poking around saying, oh my gosh, like, wow, how have we not looked into this? Or why are we not doing X, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, data has been a big thing. We will sometimes talk about how we need to speak a couple of different languages here, one being sort of the language of the head, dollars and cents and profit and loss, as Angela was talking about, and the other being the language of the heart, you know, sort of connected to doing the right thing and being really empathetic to people and, and differences and commonalities and things like that. But this data has really helped us to kind of speak that business case and, you know, facts side of things. And what we found, for an example, was... You know, we went and overlaid our entire database of credit union members, which is, you know, 60 million-ish credit union members across the country, and we overlaid it with race and ethnicity data, something that we had not done before. So it was a new perspective to us. And what we found was for one of our product lines, this was one of the very first things that we found, was, was one of the racial ethnic groups was responding to our insurance offers at twice the rate of anybody else. To the point where I thought, oh my goodness, that's, that can't even be right. Turns out it is right, and that's actually something that we find across a lot of different products and a lot of different um, you know, kinds of offers. And so it was like, wow, if that's true, that really changes the way we think about constructing some of our marketing and the way we go into the market. And so that led us down this path of, of asking another series of questions like, okay, so that's a fact. Why is that? Is there anything else going on there? Is there... Is there income? Is there a life stage? Is there age? What else is driving that? What we found was this group was responding at twice the rate of anybody else in the same income group, in the same age range. And so, and we hadn't been doing anything to cause that. We didn't know that was happening. We didn't do anything to cause it. And so started getting us going, what's going on here? And why is that happening? Which led us into conversations with, you know, some of our employee resource groups, you know, folks that, that actually were in that group and that were you know, able to sort of help us start to understand what's going on, why? Because, you know, um, if you're not in that group, you're not going to bring that perspective. And it's just started reminding us again that the, the diverse, inclusive voices around the table start to really connect the dots between the data, you know, what is happening, and the why. And so we've been following that through to, well, what should we do differently then? If we can do this well on accident, you know, how well could we do if we do things on purpose and include a lot of different voices in creating those kinds of strategies. So it's just incredibly powerful data. You know, we've been finding things about payments and bill payment preferences, and a lot of things differ by cultural group that you might not necessarily expect. And you can collect, connect it really, really quickly to business performance. I think data is really interesting because I also think that having data by itself doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story. And this is another reason to have a diverse workforce is because the hypotheses that you may come up with based on the data will be different depending on your life experience. And I think quantitative data is great, 
But qualitative data is also important. And I think when you have a combination of quantitative data and qualitative data, you'll get a sense of the, the picture. Because I think that the qualitative data helps connect the quantitative and tell the story a little bit better. So I'm really interested in, from the workforce side of piece of things, the quantitative in terms of our workforce data. But in terms of looking at inclusion, that comes from the stories that people share with the team about this is what inclusion looks like to me at CUNA Mutual Group. Here's how it could be more inclusive. I felt included here, and I felt excluded here. And I'd like to see more of this in order to create a more inclusive um, work environment, workplace. Does that make sense? No, oh, it totally does. I like the, the, the mix of, I think people. some people respond to data, and, and it's great. And then other people, depending on the situation, I think both, I mean, both yeah. of them. We really do find it to be best when you can mix the two. Right. You know, you combine data with stories that bring the data to life. Right. Um, but again, that's when it starts to feel a little bit like you're speaking two different languages, and often you need to do that. Some people respond, as you noted, better to one language than the other, but um, often it's when you can mix both that you're going to bring in the, the, mid, the largest group of people mm -hmm. that you need to have um, influence. Back when I did data primarily as my day job, uh, way back when, uh, when I was doing population health and epi epidemiology, I had to remind myself that the data, the numbers actually represented real people's lives. And I think that in, in an, if you're going to use data properly, particularly in this field or other fields, know that this is representing a person and it's not just a data point. And that's a, something that I have to remind myself of regularly. Such a good point. You know, and we often, I'm going to ask you that elaborate on shortcuts because we worry about this, right? Where where we look at data and statistics and you, you connect an over-index and wanting to mm -hmm. do something a certain way with a whole people group, right? And so it can be easy to sort of like, you know, say like everybody in that group is going to want to do X, you know? And we have this desire as human beings to have these like lists and these shortcuts, these ways of understanding the world that, that can sometimes really get in the way of mm -hmm. remembering that these are a whole bunch of individuals, real people, they may statistically, you know, look a little different than another group, but at the end of the day, we're serving individual people right. who have individual needs. So this can be helpful, but boy, you really have to put it in context. Well, the, the shortcuts is a really interesting segue as you think about bias and how our brain works, right? So quantitative data, you see a regression analysis or something correlated, you want to tell a story, but, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation. And um, you don't want to get into stereotyping a group of right. people. So in terms of the DNI space, we talk a lot about what do our biases look like as it relates to race, sexual orientation, gender, religion, all of those kinds of things. And those biases, those unconscious biases, are shortcuts that our brain makes. And how do you slow down and interrupt those biases so we're not making decisions out of a place of stereotyping? Um, but we're making decisions out of a place of uh, lived experience, maybe not our own, but someone else's, and we're gathering that data on a, the, the data and stories in a really consistent and quality manner. For the DE workshop, one of the homework assignments, uh, one of the big eye-opening activities for me is uh, somebody sent out a link, and maybe it was you guys that prompted us to take this unconscious bias test. And if you Google it, people listening, you can Google it. I forgot who. Implicit who Association it. Test by Project Implicit um, done by Harvard. Right, right. I remember it was Harvard. I didn't want to, I couldn't remember. But you take the test, you answer all these questions, and there's pictures, and then it's done. It's like, you have a strong preference for this. And it's pretty eye-opening. So I encourage mm -hmm. people to check that out. And to go back to what you were saying before, it made me think, you know, in the nonprofit world, I spent a lot of time reading about um, uh, fundraising appeals and that sort of thing. And it kind of ties to this where it's, you know, if you're trying to raise money for hunger and you could say, hey, here's a stat that shows, you know, X million amount of people are 
you know, suffering from hunger or whatever, and people don't respond to it. But then you put in one picture of, here's Timmy, who's six. He hasn't eaten, and one day is, here's a situation. People are like, oh, okay, I'm going to donate. Thanks, mm-hmm. I'm going to respond to that. But, just, you know, to your point, people respond to those stories sometimes, I think, depending on the situation. So related to um, a lot of stuff we talked about, you guys are lucky here, but you get to do this as a job. What If credit unions can't hire a specific person, I'm sure there's credit unions that do have somebody that works on this topic, but what is, what's some low-hanging fruit that credit unions should be doing in this space? Or what could they be doing? I think having a, a public statement of commitment to diversity and inclusion, I think that's one step that you can take. And working with local organizations, there are YWCAs throughout the country. YWCA, their mission is eliminating racism and helping women, helping women and eliminating racism. And a lot of them have programs around uh, racial equity, justice, and diversity. So contacting your local Y to see what's available in terms of training. Yeah, I think just asking questions too. Um, you know, like I'm thinking about the data again. You know, and so if you if you work with any kind of data at the credit union, you know, ask about looking at different dimensions of consumer diversity to see whether or not there are differences. You know, um, another one is just you know invite different people to your decision making table. You know, it could be different levels. It could be you know trying to find those people on your teams that look the most like your actual members walking into your branches or calling calling you. And uh, that can be hard to do, but but really good. And when you do that, as Angela started off, sometimes, you know, diversity without inclusion is, is not a good thing. You know, you have to work at the, the business of how do you get their voices heard? Because if you just have them in the room and, and you sort of make yourself feel better that they were there, but they're not encouraged to speak up, mm-hmm. um, whether they're just intimidated or whether there's something else going on, that, that's not, you know, it's not good enough. I mean, Eric has a great story about that. Eric's a white guy doing multicultural work here at CUNA Mutual, and then you tried to bring in this diverse team. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, we definitely tried to bring diverse people together to just form our strategy on this. And this is, this is meetings over months, right? And so each meeting you see, you know, a little bit more engagement, a little bit more engagement. People are just trying to feel it out. Are we serious about this thing? You know, can I really say what I'm thinking? And we came to these... Um, these moments, there was, there was literally what seemed like a defining moment for our team where we were actually talking about something that seems very simple. It was like, how do we refer to people in the headlines on these slides in an executive presentation? And all of the external work that you see, articles written on these topics and things, you know, we call people multicultural people. And you could even refer to people of color as multiculturals, for example. And somewhere along the line, our team didn't like that. They basically, a couple people said, I don't know, I don't want to be referred to as multiculturals. We are people of color. Um, you know, you could refer to people of color as racially diverse. Let's come up with another solution. And essentially we had this sort of two factions in the room. Most of the white people were kind of going, well, let's go with what the industry is saying because there's a certain credibility for our executives that comes from just piggybacking on how the industry talks about all these things. But then we had some of the people of color in the room who were basically saying, Essentially, yeah, but the industry's wrong. It's probably a bunch of old white guys that are sort of running the industry, you know, and we think this would be a better way. And so I, being the one that was going to need to make the presentation, sort of said, recognize I had the power of the pen um, and had to make a call later. And partly because it's just good guidance for people like Angela, ended up saying, no, I, I'm going to change the way we refer to this. We're going to talk about this as racially diverse groups and people of color. We're not going to just say everybody's multicultural. 
and so we changed those slides and we circled back and we told them we changed the slides based on their feedback and it seems like a small thing and it and it was but you could you could notice the increased level of engagement the next meeting and the meeting after that and so just paying attention and looking for those little really important moments that let you know you're either getting you know increased level of you know inclusive voices being heard or not mm-hmm. I think is one of the things that's really helpful in this work, being able to pay attention to those nuances. Do you have your team or don't you? I think there's a level of humility that's required both in the multicultural space and DNI space, diversity and inclusion space as well. Because in general, in in professional work, we're incentivized for being right or knowing the answer. And in this work, you're not necessarily going to be right all the time. And quite frankly, you're going to m- mess up. And I think it's important to recognize that, not be afraid of it, but learn from it and move forward. You know, we talk, I realize this whole podcast, we've been talking about diversity and inclusion, multicultural, but we talk about diversity. What does that mean exactly? So the, some of the foundational work that we do here at CUNA Mutual Group around diversity and inclusion is defining what is diversity. And we define diversity as there are visible forms of diversity and invisible forms of diversity. Visible forms of diversity include um, race, gender, height, uh, visible forms of ability status. Some invisible forms of diversity include sexual orientation, political affiliation, religion, um, health, educational background, socioeconomic status. So diversity is a is a, a wide spectrum of things. Now, while we define diversity in the broad spectrum of things, what we can measure from an HR standpoint is race, gender, and veteran status. So we are limited in terms of our quantitative metrics from um, looking at diversity uh, from an HR standpoint, but we define diversity and look at diversity in a very broad spectrum of things. And in terms of having diversity around the table, if everyone is look, looks like you or thinks like you, you're not going to have the same level of diversity or difference or differing opinions um, coming coming into the space. So I think it's really important to have an intentional way of thinking about who do you need in that space to make sure that you're challenging the norms. And Renee Myers is a um, diversity and inclusion consultant that I've read a lot of her work, heard a lot of her work. And what she talks about sometimes, she came to CUNA Mutual last year, I think. She said sometimes organizations want the whitest black person, want the straightest gay person, and want the most male female. So when we're thinking about diversity and bringing in diversity, we're also trying to make sure that people don't have to assimilate to what our standard of the norm or um, in terms of what we think is right. We want people to bring their actual authentic experience and voice. So just to wrap up, I think, I mean, this is really complicated. I mean, it's a complicated issues, complicated work you guys are doing. Is there, what do you have that to ground you in this, I mean, day to day? I come at this work from most of my background has been in government sector. And in the government, we try to help those poor, vulnerable populations. And I think that that's the wrong frame. It sets up a power over instead of shared power. And what grounds me is this quote from um, Lila Watson. She was an activist from Australia. And she said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And I think that that's a beautiful way to frame diversity and inclusion work is that it's not about having power over people who are different than us. It's about creating shared power so we can impact the business in really great ways. Yeah, and I come at it from a perspective of just, I'll sometimes describe it as being a student of people, you know, and just constantly wanting to learn. You know, as Angela mentioned, I've come from years on the business side, kind of driving business performance, always trying to get better at serving more people. And when we do that well, it's remarkably correlated to business success here, those kinds of things. 
But to do it really well and with the kind of empathy that I think is unique to the credit union system, you really need to understand consumers and members and people as individuals, you know, in this this kind of this push and pull of understanding that they are individuals and yet you need to be able to find some ways to aggregate that so you can make good business decisions. It's a, I don't know, for me, it's a tremendously motivating, it's, a, it's motivating work, you know, we believe in what we're doing here. And so when we are more successful because we've learned something new, something unique, something that matters to people and matters to how they relate to this whole financial services work, that's tremendously um, exciting. And so when we come at this from those different and complementary angles, I think it's it's making for a really, really bright future, not just for you know what we're doing and the work that we're doing, but for the credit union members that we seek to serve every day. That's good stuff. Well, Eric and Angela, thank you guys so much for your time. And uh, yeah, that was perfect. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, another great conversation. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. We should all strive to be students of people, like Eric said. As always, thanks for listening and to Angela and Eric today for sharing with us. Also, thanks to Sam Plester at Kinomutual Group for setting this in-person conversation up over at Kinomutual Group. Don't forget you can subscribe now to Murmurings on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you usually listen to podcasts. For more information on the foundation and much more, visit ncuf.coop. Music for the podcast is by Kevin McLeod. And always don't forget to keep purpose constant. And if you stayed this long, and please enjoy this uh, fun blooper where I can't pronounce the name of this very podcast. See you next time. Eric and Angela, welcome to Mermaid's Podcast. Thank you so much for letting me into the... Uh, Did you say Mermaid's? Murmuring's Podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I Murmurings. Oh, mermaids. I would have brought a different outfit. Yeah, totally. I didn't know we were talking about mermaids today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right. It's the best like of mermaids. <laughs> oh my god. The best mermaid podcast ever. <laughs>